This is the Journal of American History podcast for March 2011. My name is Steve Andrews, and I am the associate editor of the Journal of American History. And today we have Rachel Louise Moran, a doctoral student at Pennsylvania State University at University Park. She's produced a new article, Consuming Relief, Food Stamps and the New Welfare of the New Deal, which appears in the March 2011 issue of the Journal of American History. Can you tell us what drew you to this topic? I was originally drawn to the topic just because it combined a few interests of mine in poverty and politics and also just thinking about food and bodies. And originally I was trying to research the Black Panther breakfast programs and seeing what I could do there. But the earlier and earlier I got, I started coming across references to this food stamp program. And I assumed that even though there were references here and there, it wasn't really a big deal. It's an experimental program. And the more I started digging, the more it was absolutely everywhere. I just had this incredibly extensive coverage, and I couldn't believe that I had never heard of it, given how often it was in the papers at the time. Anything that, like, Mayor LaGuardia stars in a one-act play to promote is something that I want to know about. So beyond that, I think I was also just really excited that it was this welfare program that a lot of people loved, just loved. And that's such a strange concept, I think, in American history that I kind of wanted to know more about what was going on. So the piece itself, basically I looked at this food stamp plan, which is an experimental social welfare plan. It ran from 1939 to 1943. And it ultimately reached, I think, the majority of poor Americans, over 60%, and provided them with these agricultural surplus goods. So it's in a moment where people are very upset about the paradox of want amid plenty, the idea that farmers are destroying crops to keep prices high. At the same time, people in urban areas are hungry. And so in this context, the food stamp plan is going to allow poor relief recipients to go buy their food at stores with these coupons. It's a response to previous programs where the poor would be given surplus food, like a depot or off the back of trucks. But instead, this is going to really focus on creating these low-income consumers. They're trying to frame them as low-income consumers rather than relief recipients. So this is replacing kind of a more general just you know, giving food out directly. And so where does this idea come from? Right. Well, that's one of the things that's so interesting is that the people who are most upset about a commodities program are going to be grocers and wholesalers. So I should also say, of course, social workers don't like it. It's very stigmatizing to wait in line uh, publicly or to get your food off the back of a truck. You don't necessarily get something that's nutritious that way. But much more importantly, and the people with a lot more power than social workers, are the National Grocers Association, as well as Wholesalers Association and policy proposals that they put forward. And so grocers especially are going to feel really left out of the loop. If you give agricultural commodities directly to a poor person, then they're not going to go into a store. And 
what grocers thought was a problem in particular is that if they get their food for free, they would have had to have bought food otherwise. So now they don't have to buy food and that money gets diverted to something else. So money that should be the grocers in their mind is being taken away by the government. And so in fact, the plan is originally developed it's not exactly the same, but a version of it's originally developed and presented by the National Grocers Association in conjunction with the National Wholesalers Groups. And it's not as if they were totally new to policymaking. There's a lot going on with chain store legislation, but it is certainly surprising for a welfare program. Right. I mean, I guess they don't want the middleman who is them to be removed from this process. And so they come up with a way that's going to accomplish and hope, hopefully the same goals, but by still keeping them in the loop. Absolutely. Right. And so what is it? How does the program actually function? The one that 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 the government actually attempts? Well, it's kind of bizarre and complicated, <laughs> as I think we would imagine, but that's OK. So first you had to already be on some kind of welfare. Okay. It could be a very local program. It could be that you had a works progress administration job. It could be that you were on aid uh, to dependent children. It could be any number of things, but you had to have already been in the system in some way. And then you have to go, and here's the part I think that's unfamiliar, is you have to go buy your food stamps. And they mean that very literally. So you go and you put in a dollar and you get back a dollar fifty. And the dollar that you put in yourself, you're going to get back in these orange stamps. And you can use the orange stamps to buy normal food at a grocery store um, as long as you're not buying alcohol or anything imported or any sort of like prepared sandwich. But you can buy normal food that they find appropriate. And then the other 50 cents you get back you get back in these blue stamps. And blue stamps could be used to buy whatever was a surplus product at the moment. So it might be pork, it might be eggs. There was usually a list of a few items. So they did have more of a choice than when you get it off a truck. And probably most important is that you have to then go to the grocery store. And the grocers paste the stamps into little books and bring them to banks to get reimbursed you have to be shopping. And I think there's a lot of powerful imagery in both aspects of buying in and the fact that you have to physically consume to get your stamps. You have to pay for your food stamps. And then beyond that, you go, you wait in the grocery line, you put things in your bags, you know, you walk away from the grocery store having paid, even if you pay in coupons, and even if the buy-in that you did, even if the original dollar you spent came out of a relief check anyway, it doesn't matter. It's this intense symbolic process. And, and to, the, to the outside observer, I mean, un- unless they're standing right there observing the point of sale, you look like any other shopper. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that it's so important for decreasing stigma. Very rarely did people complain that they were facing stigma from this program. Maybe, I mean, I've read complaints about people who are actually grocers who felt like they were judged, who were like retired grocers. But for the most part, people are fine. So, that, I mean, were they sold in, in denominations as larger or smaller, or was a dollar the, the, the minimum or maximum buy-in? It's the minimum. And it's the minimum 
per family member per week. Oh. And so that ends up creating a lot of controversy. If you have a family of four, you have to put $4 in. And it creates a problem because a lot of the time people say, well, we don't spend that much on food. Because in that case, you'd put in $4, you'd have $6 to spend on food. And food is, of course, a commodity that tends to be very flexible. So if you're in hard times, you can't do much about your electricity, you can't do much about your rent, but you can buy cheaper and cheaper food or less and less food. So the fact you absolutely are required to buy this to participate makes it hard for some people. And the response when the federal agency starts to get complaints, the response is really the issuing of all these social scientists, of government economists who go in and try and really carefully mathematically plan what a poor family should be spending on food. Wow. Okay. And so, I mean, there are even cases where they, they do a lot of studies, they issue people journals, and they even make fun of poor consumers for being bad consumers at some point for like, oh yeah, if you go to the deli counter, of course you're going to spend money. You know, you're so lazy and silly. And there are great moments also where people complain and say, like, I see that the government says that I should spend this much on rent, but my rent is a couple dollars higher. And I also have to buy this and that for my kids to go to school. And I can't pay for this. And in some localities, people who are most upset are those who had slightly better deals beforehand. So people are excited about the food stamps. I mean, it is just absolutely such an exciting program when it comes out. It's really fascinating in that sense. But even though people are excited when they actually get the stamps, sometimes if you had been receiving cash relief, which was rare, of course, but if you'd been receiving cash relief, this program is a major step down. And even some people who had been receiving that off-the-truck relief start to think, well, you know, at least that off-the-truck relief didn't make me pay $4 a week or $5 a week or whatever it might be. So there's some conflict in that issue. When the program came out, you said there's a lot of excitement. And did, did that generally remain? Were there camps who liked and opposed it? Or if they opposed it, what were the reasons? I mean, you've gone over some about if you had a better deal, this might seem to be a step down. But what did it create a lot of controversy? And if so, what are the different sides? For the most part, one of the things, of course, that I said earlier is so interesting is that it didn't create that much controversy. I do think it's very important what groups, particularly it's the very poor who are supposed to use the plan, some of those people are unhappy with the program. But even that is a minority of people who actually use the stamps who don't like the stamps. The vast majority of people of all classes really like it, which is so strange. But they do Gallup polls, for example, more than 70% of people are behind it. To some extent, it gets, you know, a poll is never perfect. There's always messiness in the questions. But in poll after poll of different sorts, honestly, people are excited about the plan. There are just absolutely endless letters to the uh, Surplus Marketing Administration about how they need to expand the plan, about how we want it in our city, we want it in our city, whether it's a rotary club or a labor group or a grocery chain, all these different groups of people write in and say you need to bring it to XYZ. 
and they say you need to spread it to more and more people. They run a test program in 39 in Shawnee, Oklahoma, where they try giving it to people who are working class but not on relief. doesn't go great, but they're trying to expand it even. And there are some calls for plans to actually expand it to everyone in the U.S. is one request that's made more than one time. And the program becomes a model for all sorts of things. There's a cotton stamp program that goes, that actually is created out of it, but has minimal success because of problems with the overhead of cotton stamps. It has a lot of influence on how people think about welfare at the time. I think that there's reason to believe it's a reflection of how people are already thinking about the welfare state, not that the food stamp program changes the planet, but that there's a sense that, okay, we do want our poor to be consumers. We want them in the fold. We want them to not be so poor or hungry that they seem like threats to the nation. There are a lot of aspects of the program that make it broadly appealing. And it's, it's coming at the tail end of the, the New Deal. So there's already been a lot of experimentation with these kinds of things by this point, right? Exactly. And that's one aspect of it that's so important is that it is part of this moment when Keynesian economics has really taken off as one theory behind how the program will work, like, like Alan Brinkley has really explained. So once you have a sense that maybe consumption and purchasing power is going to be the social welfare of the future, a program like this makes more sense. It's going to gain more popularity. From what you're saying, it sounds like, surprisingly, like it spreads from the bottom up. People are asking for it, not necessarily it's that the federal government is pushing this onto people, but people are actually asking it. So it's kind of a bottom-up spread rather than a top-down kind of imposition. Of course, so many people actually ask for it that the government makes its own decisions about what city will get it, what sure, city sure. it will cooperate easiest and all of that. But it never is able to reach all of the cities that request it. And I don't even mean just the Rotary Club requests it. In that case, I mean that the actual city government or county government will request it. And it's just not a place that the program can expand to. They expand to almost 1,500 counties by the time that they finish. And we're talking only about expansion in, in about four years' time. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty phenomenal. Typically, you know, when we talk about these kind of issues of, of welfare, one of the issues that comes up is race. And was, was that a factor in this? Yeah. And race plays a very strange and interesting role in what goes on in this plan. Now, one of the issues with consumption and something that's come out really interestingly in a lot of recent consumption studies, like by Elizabeth Cohen or by Meg Jacobs, is the sense that people are empowered by consumption and that people are even, in fact, able to unify, able to speak a more common language because of consumption, that it has the possibility of creating a slightly more even playing field. And in, to some extent, you do see that in this program. Because what happens is that in the minds um, of the Surplus Marketing Administration, there's this real clear sense, a real clear imagination of who uses this program. And it's not what really is happening, but there's this real strong sense 
that we have a white nuclear family that is using this program. We have a class life and so many cases it's really a single mom on aid to dependent children but you imagine a middle-class housewife who's going to cook for her family with these surplus goods and it's always imagine white there's no publicity on the program where anybody's not white the imagination even if it's not true it allows for all kinds of people to slip into the program so as part of the imagination, you just don't ever talk about race. You don't say this is only for white people. You just don't talk about it. It's not even a question when you're talking about the Cunningham family. So there's no specific barring of African-Americans. But what does happen is that because everybody is already on some kind of welfare, because that's how you enter the program, all these other welfare programs that have their own racial problems are going to not you know, they're not solved by food stamps. So if you're in an area where you feel like the local board is supposed to be letting you have food stamps, you and the board doesn't let you have food stamps, people wrote in, people would write in into the food stamp plan and say, my local board should be letting me, why can't I use this? Or even, my local board won't hire me, Right you won't let me onto a works progress administration project. I keep trying to get on one, but I, they're not hiring me because I'm African American and the government people in the federal level administration do not get involved. They absolutely actively get involved. They write back and say, I think you should just talk to them again. Um, you know, stuff that I'm sure helps a lot. <laughs> And I think part of that also might be because this is such a, it's a program where you don't make anybody angry. It's a program where you make everybody happy. It's a welfare program that so many people can unite behind. The last thing you want to do is start creating messy problems. I think one of my favorite examples of some of the disconnect between how a consuming family is imagined and what's actually going on is there's this one amazing photo. I think from the FDR collection, which shows the iconic food stamp poster, which is a white, very perky middle-class housewife. And she's standing with a grocer and a farmer. And so these three characters are all standing together. They're happy. They're excited about surplus food stamps. They're the epitome of middle-class consuming America. And you see this poster in this one photograph, in this dingy, horrible gas station setting where you know that there must be like a few pieces of food inside that somehow they've able, been able to get government approval to use stamps. And I think that <laughs> that's one of those moments where you see, right, that's what destitute Great Depression poverty is. Right. And that's what the image of what it could mean to be a relief consumer in the eyes of a very optimistic government was. I mean, and this idea of the imagined consumer, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, how, how the, what they're imagining the consumer to be is not accurate. And, and I thought in the article, one of the things that came out was how important marital status was and being single, how it didn't fit into the, to the program. And being a single male was also, I mean, a, a problem for, for implementing the program, right? Yes. A single woman with children was fine. 
And early on in the program, you could be whatever marital status you were, especially when you think about people who are going to be young men who might be working some sort of works progress or CCC job or something like that. They're most likely going to be a single man who's still going to want food stamps. And that works at the beginning. But by 1940, there are enough concerns about the use of single men especially in the program that they completely are cut out, banned from food stamps. Banned? Banned, absolutely. No food stamps for a single man. So the issue as it's first framed, so it's framed as a man can't cook. Why are we going to give him this food? Because these are surplus items. So a lot of it requires cooking. It requires extra labor on the part of the housewife, for example. And if there's no housewife, who's going to cook the pork? Uh, there's a sense that a lot of single man probably lives in a boarding house or someplace where he wouldn't even have a kitchen, let alone know how to use it. And in some cases, that's true. And in some cases, it's imagined, just a stereotype. But I think most important is that what then happens is that some single men write in to the government and then also some representatives, some labor representatives, for example, are going to write in and say, this guy, he's actually a World War I veteran. He lives alone, but he should still be able to get oranges. He should still be able to get an egg because his neighbor will boil it for him. So can you have special single men's stamps? And when this is put forward, the response is pretty clearly not like, it's not that you can, we should consider that or that no, men simply can't cook. The response is actually very clearly that men are not to be trusted. A single man, and not just a single man, but a single poor urban man is about as shady as you can get. And they're not going to support a program that supports somebody that dangerous, that socially dangerous. They say over and over, although there's no evidence specifically about this issue, we believe a person in that position is very likely to abuse the system, to cheat the system, say to get their pork and then sell it to somebody else who does cook. Also, one idea that I think is really interesting that somebody else came up with me that Laurie Ginsburg came up with and suggested, and I think it's really smart, is that it also is probably related to fears of desertion. So not only is the poor man a questionable member of society because he's not a good family member, he's probably a criminal. He's also, you hardly want to reward a man for not being part of a family in a time where there's a real problem with desertion. Wow. So what eventually ended this program? I mean, if it, if it ends in what, 43? 43, formally really in 44. But really, and at first it seemed too simple to me, and maybe it is, but I think it was just really ended by the intensity of World War II. There are food shortages instead of food surpluses. People have rationing stamps, not food stamps. On the other hand, lots of people are being fed by the military overseas. In general, I think the government has always been more interested in feeding men and in having strong laboring bodies than necessarily in feeding women. So I think that's an important category that they don't need to worry about as much. After the war, there are going to be some attempts to, to resuscitate it. 
but really they're going to fail for the most part. And I think a lot of that is going to come by the end of the 40s, just out of the idea that once you start getting into a post-war boom, just the understanding of poverty and who's in poverty is going to be quite different. And Kennedy is ultimately going to revive food stamps in the er, in the 50s and starting more trial programs. And then, of course, it becomes law with the Food Stamp Act and by Johnson in 64. And in, in, in the 60s, do they, and uh, you may not know this, it's outside of your, with the research you've done for this project, but do they, do they look back to the 40s and say, we had this great thing that was really popular, let's bring it back? I mean, I'm certainly that, you know, you know, Johnson and all is that these are all new dealers at the time, even young new dealers. So they must have a, have a working memory of the program itself. And in fact, the program that they created in the 60s owes an incredible amount to the program of the 30s and 40s. There's certainly in the gap between the end of the stamp program, as soon as the stamp program ends, people write in talking about how much they love stamps, whether or not they even actually love stamps at the time. Uh, as a poor relief consumer, they certainly love stamps after. And there are certainly letters that are written through the 50s and into the early 60s saying, bring back stamps. Now, the number of those letters is not extraordinary, but I think it's interesting enough that it's a trend, that it remains in people's minds. So what's so interesting about the 60s program is actually that it is so similar to the 30s and 40s program. I think that's something that just we in general, whether we're historians or just anybody, don't think about. Because food stamps isn't a buy-in program now, we really don't think about it having ever been a buy-in program. But it was a program where you had to pay for your food stamps until 1977. Oh, wow. When it began again in the 60s, they changed it. So instead of having two stamps, instead of having a blue stamp and an orange stamp, you now had one stamp. So I don't even have exact numbers, but say you'd spend $2 and you'd get a $3 stamp instead. But it's one one specific stamp, and you can use that on the same kind of stuff you could use it on at the time um, in the 30s. You can use it on anything that's not foreign or liquor. And you were supposed to be, of course, helping out agriculture. But really, it was becoming less and less tied to that concept. I think especially the agriculture became a more and more first industry where when you buy a packaged good, you're supporting agriculture as much as when you buy something else. And it's still to this day is a USDA program. You know, one of the longstanding debates in the historiography of the New Deal is, you know, whether this was, whether these efforts, not just the food stamps, of course, but the, the whole, you know, kind of galaxy of things that are being tried, whether they're radical or whether they're conservative, you know, is, is that a debate that you think that your work plugs into? Does it, do you find that not to be something that was a consideration as you were thinking about this? Or, or, or if so, where does, you know, the food stamp plan fit in that understanding? And I certainly thought about it. I think it's one of the debates that even though it's so tired sure, and kind of yeah. fruitless at this point, you just can't escape if you're thinking about the New Deal. Um, and the problem with it, of course, 
is that all it really tells you when you analyze it is what the modern historian's politics are. Right, right. But given that, I'll say it was a mixed bag. I mean, it's liberal just in its, ex- in its existence. It's the growth of a social welfare state. I mean, the entire growth of the social welfare state in the Depression, no matter who specifically designs the program, I think that's always going to be liberal. And I also think some aspects of it, like minimizing stigma, is really important and liberal. And I also think trying to imagine, and this is so important to the program, but trying to think, however you do it, about poor welfare recipients as consumers, as normal people, I suppose that quotes, is a liberal, almost radical notion, uh, even if it's to get to a conservative capitalist end. I also think that a lot of the racial and gender inclusion that happened in the program, even if it wasn't necessarily what they set out to do, is an interesting liberal move about the program, especially because there's such a rich and smart literature, say, feminist historiography of the welfare state reminds us how many ways (laughs) women were treated badly by the welfare state. And they were. But there are also moments that are really important where you can play with it, where you can slip by, where you can be a single mother who gets an extra benefit from it. And part of the consuming model that's so interesting is that you don't have to play the same games, except, I guess, for single men. But you don't usually have to play the same games about being the deserving poor. You deal with that when you get your original welfare. But to get food stamps, you, you're just accepted as a consumer, as long as you have the other criteria met. So I think that's important for thinking of it as a more liberal program. That said, I think it's also important to point out some of the things that are conservative about it. It's very much a business-originated program. It's a business-oriented program. Its primary goals are to help business. It wouldn't happen. I strongly believe, based on everything I read, we wouldn't have food stamps in this country if business didn't want food stamps. And the goal is also to craft respectable middle-class consumers. And it's not because people have a right to food or deserve food. It's because they should have food because otherwise they're not part of the system. So I think that that's an important difference. I think you can see that in the way that they might be, say, told rather paternalistically, what they should be buying, how they consume, where they should consume. So that's an important conservative aspect. Getting these people away from free food handed out from a truck directly from the government to the normal channels of business. And the idea of the normal channels comes up over and over. It's a very important thought. And that's one of the reasons that even through the 70s, nobody wants to get rid of the purchase requirement, even though it gets lower and lower and lower. So it's essentially symbolic. It'll become like 50 cents. You can't get rid of that symbolic purchase because it's a handout then. It's totally different. Yeah, I had to say when I first read the piece, that requirement and you're very, you know, I mean, you say that it's confusing, but it sure seems so clear in the piece and how that buy-in requirement seems so alien from what we think of today as the debate over welfare. It just seems to be 
coming from a from a different place and the fact that it lasted so long when they brought it back in the 60s I thought was very surprising I thought there was a lot in this piece that uh, that I didn't know and I was glad to know after I finished reading it well thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it and for submitting the piece uh, I can't wait to see what the reaction is when it comes out in March I think uh, people will really like it I appreciate that so much and I appreciate that you uh, spoke to me today about it thanks so much the Organization of American Historians holds several events each year for researchers and educators in American history. To learn more about the OAH Annual Meeting, the OAH Community College Workshop, and other ways to connect with researchers and educators, visit the OAH website at www.oah.org meetings. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the journal of record in American history. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in June for our next program. If you have questions or comments, please email us at jhcast at oah.org.